I actually kind of like it that they don't read. <laughs> it's funny. Some of my closest friends, some of my closest guy friends, I'll be hanging out with them. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read your book. I'll be like, yeah, we'll be talking about something. I'll be like, yeah, I actually kind of wrote about that in my last book, you know, that blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, dude. I guess uh, this is kind of embarrassing, but I never read that book. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's actually probably why we're still such good friends is that you're not reading my books. <laughs> A hit author on top of his game, willing to talk about issues all of us writers experience, even from the rare category of someone who sold 20 million books and writes one of the most popular self-development blogs in the world. That was Mark Manson, the author of three number one New York Times bestsellers, the first of which, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, is now a new movie from Universal Pictures. I'm Linda Sievertson, and you are at the Beautiful Writers Podcast, where the world's most beloved authors come to chat about the magic and mayhem of writing and publishing books, even when what they have to share is about stuff that gets all fucked up. Mark, who's on tour for the film, and I know something about that. He was Will Smith's writer on their juggernaut bestseller, Will, which received rave critical reviews, including from Oprah, who called it the best memoir she'd ever read. They had spectacular sales success before the slap. I didn't plan to ask Mark about that or expect him to share so openly. But perhaps I put him at ease after admitting to being in a freakishly similar situation myself as a co-author. Penning books, don't you know, your own or those for other people, is rarely as complication-free as it appears on Instagram. Hopefully, this conversation and others here make your path to success, whatever your goals are, easier and more fun. Help you stay focused when shit goes wonky, as it does. For example, I recently released my book, a writing memoir called Beautiful Writers, a journey of big dreams and messy manuscripts with tricks of the trade from best-selling authors, the people on this show. True to form, some shit got wonky. As my storyline includes my publishing face plants and outrageous funny dramas, several loved ones in my life on my book's launch day had their own dramas, not so funny ones either, which made that day hell the first 12 or so weeks, a roller coaster. And not unlike Mark, some of my closest, nearest, and dearest did not read my book and seemed to have no plans to, which we'll talk about. I shouldn't have been surprised. I warn my readers about that very thing in the book, encouraging them to never ever take it personally. It's not personal, <laughs> but yeah, I'm still trying to find the humor and relief that Mark has found. Thank you, by the way, to those of you who did buy Beautiful Writers and have posted incredible comments on social media and on Amazon.com and Goodreads. We may not have met yet, you and I, but when things get wonky, you make all the discipline and focus and eye strain worth it many times over. Oh, I wanna add that these episodes are still audio only. I'm a little old school that way, but you can find pictures of Mark and me as we recorded this episode 
and other celebs from previous episodes on my feeds on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under Linda Sievertson, no L, an impossible to spell last name I know. You can find all the links at bookmama.com or beautifulwriterspodcast.com. Okay, we did it. Made it through another year. Holy blessings. I love this conversation so much. I love you too. Welcome. You and I actually share a really rare experience. We both wrote New York Times bestselling books with famous men at the top of their game who then had a massive public fall from grace. (laughs) Who was yours? I wrote Harmonic Wealth with James Arthur Ray, who a few years after our book pubbed would lead a sweat lodge ceremony where three people died and James went to prison. Oh my God. Yeah. So both men were engulfed in a media circus and global outrage. And I guess the only question I have for you that I would want public is, (laughs) did that experience leave you jaded at all? Because it did for me. Well, I can understand why that would for you. For me, no. I. It's funny because this was the irony, right? So after the Will Smith, Chris Rock slap thing, I got a lot of emails from fans and readers saying like, how could you work with this guy? And I can't believe it. I thought you stood by this guy, said he was a great guy and all this stuff. And to me, it was very ironic because when I started working with Will, one of the first things he and I talked about was he said, the world doesn't know the real Will Smith. And I want people to know the real Will Smith. And throughout the book, we talked about how he came from a rough background. He came from a background with a lot of violence. He had a long history of violence growing up. He had a lot of altercations early in his career. So for me, I think I was less shocked than anybody else. I was like, oh. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah there, there's West Philly, Will, right. you know, showing up. So I kind of wrote a little bit of a, def- not a defense of him. Like, obviously, I don't, I don't think I don't think he did a good thing, but just like a why are you surprised if you read the book you wouldn't be so surprised. I still have an immense fondness for him even if I don't like what he did or agree with it. And honestly, it was a little disappointing because I am proud of that book. I think it's a great book. Oh, and it's I think, so good. Everyone I know and, read it. My son gave it to me the day it came out. Everything. Yeah. It, I really think he Sorry. and I nailed it. And the slap happened, I think, five months, four months after it came out. And you can look at the book scan chart and it just, it falls off a cliff. Sales just got decimated the week yeah. after that and have never really recovered. So that was a little bit disappointing just because... I don't know, maybe selfishly. I'm like, guys, it's a good book. I had a long career as a ghostwriter. And I don't know that people realize how much of our heart and soul we put into those books. It's like you're an actor and you're studying for a role. And in my case, I read nine of James's diaries. I listened to hours of his lectures, his speeches. I read his previous books. A lot goes behind the yeah. scenes when you're a ghostwriter or a co-author. And what it did for me 
where I got really jaded, Marcus, I for a minute was like, gosh, darn it. I had a lot of experience in Hollywood. In fact, I was a producer like you. You're an EP on your movie. And I was a producer for five minutes on my uncle's movie. He wrote a book called The Second Son that sold like 6 million copies when I was a kid. And it was going to the screen. In fact, at one point, Will Smith wanted to be the black second son. And he was talking about making the film. Anyway, what I thought after this happened, after this co-author experience with James, I just thought, oh my God, I grew up thinking that books were sacred. Books were real. Hollywood was make-believe. But books were real. And then I thought, but I'm a ghostwriter. And so many books are ghostwritten. And we're putting so much of ourselves into these books. And then suddenly I thought, it's no less make-believe than Disneyland or Hollywood. So I got really jaded on my industry in general. I thought, it's all fake. I started to go, you know, when you go extreme one end, you overcorrect. (laughs) You overcorrect, yeah. Of course, correct. And anything with like steps or tips, (laughs) I just was so horrified by it all. And you know what it reminded me about? You know, that part you have in Everything is Fucked, Mm. where in that book, which I also love, where you're talking about, oh, it's so easy to start your own religion. And (laughs) first, all you have to do is find followers and make money, rituals, rituals, rituals. To me, it was like that. It was like, In the follow-up to the book that I just released, Beautiful Writers, book two is everything that happens after publication. And I have this scene where I say, I've been an enabler, co-authoring books for reader whose lives are all messed up. I know, let's peddle them a $20 book and get on TV. (laughs) But wait, what are we going to say to actually help them? Uh, Yeah. I kind of got that vibe from your movie. You were essentially saying... Look, guys, self-help is written. You didn't say this, but this is what I took. A lot of self-help is written by a lot of messed up people. And you better be really freaking careful on what you believe. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely on the same page with the disillusionment with the self-help industry. (laughs) (laughs) I've long been very critical of it. And I think most of it is well-intentioned. No doubt. There's probably a few conscious bad actors in the industry. But I think for the most part, it's well-intentioned. But like you said, it's highly damaged people leading other highly damaged people. (laughs) And yeah, there's definitely a lot of good advice that gets sold. And there's also a lot of bad advice that gets sold. And there's also a lot of manipulation and price gouging. And since I got into this world kind of unexpectedly, as a former consumer of this world who became very frustrated early on in my life. I've always been very highly sensitive to the moral hazards of selling advice, offering advice, marketing advice, because I just think it's desperately needed in this space. And I think it's also worked out well for me because I think people appreciate that a lot. And mm-hmm. they they trust me. They know it's like, well... Mark's not just going to feed us a bunch of bullshit and oh, totally in cram fact, us into a seminar room and charge us our life savings. <laughs> oh, no. In fact, I read when I was researching this, I read the comments on your books and so many people say the same thing. A lot of your comments are from men who don't mm. typically do as much self-help, I think, as women. 
but they're like, this, this is the way that I can heal. Or this is the one book that has allowed me to find some peace. I love that about you. And I got to the point where I was so jaded after that experience. I was like, I am never, not in a million years, going to write self-help, like never, never again. I've been in Elephant Santa's workshop, turning out toys by the bag full and they're all (laughs) crazy. I was just so jaded. But I had one where I had to finish. I was doing a business book with Darren Hardy. It was called The Compound Effect. So I had to finish The Compound Effect. And I left that book. I was so proud of its eventual success. But I still felt like a fraud on some days, like hating my industry. And then Jim Rohn died. Remember Jim Rohn? Mm -hmm. Such a god in the self-help world. And Darren asked me, he's like, will you go with me to the memorial? And I wanted none of it. The last person I wanted to see on stage was Tony Robbins or Les Brown. All those guys rah-rahing from the stage. But here's what happened. They were not rah-rahing. They were humble. And they were filled with gratitude. and. The whole memorial was about how some self-help had healed their childhoods or saved their lives. And I thought about those books that had done that for me as a kid. And it softened me. I didn't lose all my jadedness, but it softened me. And I think it prepped me for your work because what I love about your work and what I love about this movie is I'm a grandiose thinker. I'm a positivity girl. But as I get older and as the knocks get more plentiful because as you get older, <laughs> more shit happens, right? Yep, yep. You've got the scars. The shit I want to pause here briefly to say that after the sweat lodge deaths, I was angry at James. Devastated, really. Reporters found me, wanted statements, which I did not offer. When I told James how upset I was and my reasons, he was devastated. Later, after he'd gone from his beautiful mansion on Mulholland in Beverly Hills to the Hole, or solitary confinement next to Death Row, where James descended into his own personal hell and served his sentence, I wrote to him, telling him that of course I knew he never meant for anyone to get hurt, that despite how upset I'd been, I knew he'd spent his life trying to help others to be their best. He called me with so much humility and many tears. He'd lost everything and asked me to work on his next book with him. I passed and advised him to lay low for a long time. But I will say that I was so pleased to see that that book, The Business of Redemption, was beautifully done and opens with James taking full responsibility. It's a courageous offering. And I think. There's a lot to be learned from the type of healing that comes from those amongst us who have gone from those highest highs to the lowest lows. I want to ask you, how has putting your thoughts down on paper and now on film, how has it changed you? Do you ever wrestle with trying to be a realist and a big thinker, and not get too Mm. jaded. What's your process look like? Well, for me, it's I kind of discovered early on when I was blogging that my best material comes when I'm writing for myself. And it also kind of solves this conundrum of 
responsibility, accountability to the readership, staying humble with my own advice. I try to be very upfront with my audience that I'm not writing this because I have all the answers. I'm writing this because I have the same problem. Yeah, you're truly yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what you're reading is kind of my very public thought process (laughs) or journaling of how I want to deal with this and myself. And from a very early stage, that felt very right to me, both in terms of getting the best content out of myself, but also doing it in a way that was very authentic and I think ethically aligned with my audience and their needs. I've also always been very upfront. I get emails from people who say like, I read your book and I thought it was bullshit. It doesn't work or whatever. I'm like, great, man. Good luck. Best to you. There's no universal answer to any of this stuff. We're all very different people. We're in different places in our lives. And I always try to keep that in the front of my mind when I'm doing any of this stuff. Can we talk about how fucked up it is recording an audiobook? (laughs) <laughs> I'm doing it right now like, and, I, and I half want to die. It is the least fun part of... It is Thank like the, the most grueling, tedious part of a book launch, period. <laughs> I don't know how I've been in this industry so long and never done an audiobook, but it is just excruciating because <laughs> you're not reading your story. You're yeah. performing your performing. story. Yeah. I thought being a podcaster and I cut out ums, and if there's too many F-bombs, we cut. But I love to produce. No way on the audiobook, (laughs) eh? (laughs) Why do you think it's so hard? Well, first of all, the thing you're reading is something that you're so sick of. Oh, God. (laughs) You just went through through like four rounds of edits on this thing you spent two years writing, and now you're supposed to sit down and read it again? Oh, yeah. So part of it, at least for me, is just that by the time you get to the audiobook recording, I am so sick of my own book at that point. I'm just like, I can't even look at this anymore. But then, yeah, there's a tedium of, I think, the repetitiveness. Yep. You're reading a paragraph and you like (laughs) mispronounce a vowel on the last word. And you got to go back and do the whole thing again. Thank you. and, And after that happens about 30 times, you're just like... Oh, it's shocking. It's shocking how you'll forget, or I forget to add an ED to a word. And I'm like, I just did four sentences perfectly and we have to redo it because I forgot an ED. (laughs) Yeah. What I have found with it, when it's rushed, that's the worst because then you have to pull like crazy eight-hour session. What I've noticed is that if I'm able to break it up, do say two to four hours a day for like five days, That's a lot more manageable. Doing two hours a day is completely manageable. It's once you get to like hour four, five, six, seven, that that you're just like, shoot me, end it now. (laughs) I don't even want, I don't even want this book out anymore. I don't care anymore. I don't care. Yeah, Yeah, they booked 42 hours for mine because it's 130,000 words. And oh my God. So thankfully, the days are now pretty short, but oh, Lord in heaven. I don't want our listeners to feel like... (laughs) Oh, look at us poor authors complaining about their job. Right? I mean, I'm so (laughs) grateful. And at God, I found out how much they're spending on it. And it's a bloody fortune. So I'm so, so, so grateful. 
it's just, it really, really is hard. My producer's like, Linda, would you just swallow your saliva again? It's building up. <laughs> I'm like, now I'm thinking in my real life, should I be swallowing my saliva? <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to be becoming more standard for authors. People seem to prefer for the authors to read it themselves these days. I think that's kind of like a, that seems to be the trend. Even if it's, I feel like I definitely read my books worse than a professional would read them. Oh, ditto, me too. I have no accents to say my life. But yeah, that seems to be what the readers want. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, so you say that life is always going to suck a little bit. Let me just ask you, does it suck a little less when you've sold millions <laughs> of books? Just, just give us that. Uh, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Look, given the alternative of having sold millions of books or having not sold millions of books, right. obviously I will take right. the... But it doesn't... In Subtle Art, I talk about how in life, you never escape having problems. You simply upgrade... Pick better ones. Slightly better problems. Yes, it is. It is a case of upgrading your problems to slightly better problems. It's like pre-success, my publisher couldn't be bothered to return an email. Post-success, it's like <laughs> like if I sneeze the wrong way, there's like a eight-person conference call wanting to check in about my latest idea. You know, it's oh, that's it's, fantastic. You just replace one set of issues with another. <laughs> no kidding. You say that we are all living our own hero's journey, but that that is junk food for the mind and that sometimes or lots of times falling apart has to happen. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Where did I talk about hero's journey? I think you used those words in the movie. I think it was the need to be heroic, the need to be Uh, like this self-important center of the universe protagonist of your own bigger-than-life story. And you were saying that that's really junk food for the mind. You were comparing it, I think, to McDonald's. Gotcha. I think it's this idea that we need to do something extraordinary. I was talking about it in the sense that there needs to be some big drama in our life, some big conquering that's happening. And that feels very exciting psychologically, but I don't know if that's necessarily the healthiest way to view things. Another way of thinking of the inverse of that concept would be just that boredom is underrated or doing boring things is underrated. I think if you think about the actions and behaviors that have the highest leverage impact and benefit throughout your life, they tend to be very boring things. Like a good relationship isn't these dramatic displays of romantic gestures constantly. It's checking in with your partner and talking about their day and ordering your favorite pizza together. That's actually what a good relationship is made up of. So I often, and this kind of comes back to the self-help industry thing, I think the big dramatic transformations and actions and behaviors, that sells very well. But I think most people who are struggling in their everyday life, they are struggling because they are not good at doing the boring, mundane things Mm. consistently. Mm -hmm. I think if we asked my husband his favorite thing about our relationship, 
He would say how I rub his feet at the end of a long day. <laughs> I need that. Boring I like that. as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. It's, it's, yeah. It's, but connecting, right? Totally. I remember my wife and I were joking about this recently that our idea of a perfect Friday night is just sitting on the couch watching Netflix together. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Like, we looked at each other. We were like, when did we get so old? And oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, for sure. We have a million dogs. We have something called the dog couch. So it started off as a really beautiful couch. And now if you look carefully, there's little bites and it's a mess. And so we'll just get on the dog couch covered in animals watching TV. And what could be better? What could be better? Social media. Okay. Mm. I loved how you talked about, gosh, I don't remember where it was. I think it was in the movie about humanity's highlight reel and how we're all comparing our boring lives to people's highlight reels. Yeah. I think one of the things that our listeners really wrestle with is they're just trying to write a great story. And the last thing they want to have to worry about is becoming a brand and creating this big following while they're trying to just figure out what their story is. You seem to have a really healthy relationship with social media. I love following you. I love your videos. You're pretty off the cuff and funny and fun about it. Anything you can pass on to help people who are wrestling with this relationship? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this, both from, I guess, a consumer side and a producer side. I think from a consumption side, I just think, your relationship with social media needs to be managed kind of the same. The analogy I've used in some articles is of an attention diet. The same way you have to kind of teach yourself to be aware of the food that you're eating and how much of it you're eating so that you maintain your physical health. I think we're entering a world where we have to be very aware and conscious of the amount of information and media that we're consuming and the type of information and media that we're consuming so we can keep our minds healthy. So that's kind of on a consumer end. From the artistic end, unfortunately, I think it's the nature of the business in 2022 that you have to participate in these platforms. If you want to have a career doing anything creative these days, whether it's as an author or as a writer or film and television, an artist, visual artist, musician, whatever, you have to have some sort of platform. And a lot of people don't like that. But I see it as a good thing. And I also see it as a resource because for me, I see the online platforms as a place to kind of market test ideas. Yeah, I do. Um, One of the hardest parts about being a writer is that you sit in a room by yourself (laughs) week in, week out. Going (laughs) living with your own thoughts, suffering with your own thoughts. And we all play these mental games with ourselves of, is this a good idea? We have this idea, we think it's brilliant, and then you write it and you're like, well, wait, no, that's not that good. And then a week goes by and maybe you revise it and you're like, no, no, that is is brilliant. And then another week goes by and you're like, oh, this is shit. Why not just summarize the idea in a couple tweets, throw it on Twitter and see if people like it? just run a quick market test. And that's been hugely helpful for me. And it just solves it right there. It's like, oh, that bombed. Okay, definitely <laughs> not. That's definitely not going to be a chapter then. And then if people like it, you're like, okay, cool. I should expand on that and keep digging and see what else is there. I often so, find that yeah, I get surprised by what people like. 
Sometimes it's the idea I wasn't expecting they would like that they like. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's. I'm still often shocked (laughs) by what goes over well and what bombs. I think instead of looking at it as this chore that you have to do to make your publisher happy or to get a book deal or whatever, look at it as a resource. It's a place to expand and improve upon your own ideas. I agree. A couple quick fires. Best part of being a writer. Uh, Best part is you choose your own hours. You can sit around and write in your bathrobe if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the best part. And it's, there's something very gratifying. The best thing is also often the worst thing, depending on the context. But, you know, what I love about it is 90% of it is a solo project. You're on your own. You can do it whenever you want, however you want, dressed however you want. There's no rules. You get to decide. Yeah. Biggest surprise of becoming well-known? Biggest surprise? I would say the way it it affects some relationships. Yeah, they say you don't change, but everyone else changes around you. Yeah. That's it? I wouldn't say everybody, but some people. And I would say it's surprising which ones, right? Like if, <laughs> like if I was to place bets on which people in my life might change if I quote unquote made it big. Yeah, it, it was surprising who and in what ways. But a lot of people are exactly the same, which is great. I've experienced the opposite of that, which was years ago when I was struggling to get my first book done and I think I had an agent. Oh, I did have an agent, but he couldn't sell my book. He was sending it all over. And I was a nobody. I had no platform, no nothing. I'm living out in the middle of nowhere. And I had kind of dumped this group of girlfriends. They were a support group that I had. And I just, I was like, I don't have time for friends. Well, I'll reconnect when my book is sold and whatever. And then they all became globally famous without me. It's part of the storyline for Beautiful Writers, but it was truly the most incredibly insane period of my life. And now we all laugh about it, but I was the one who changed because I became so insecure and so weird. I had all these ideas and guilt about bailing on them and then thinking that they were like celebrating without me, like, oh, where's that weird Linda girl? I wonder what she's doing. They weren't thinking about me at all. They were traveling the world busy. And they were like, oh, I miss Linda. Well, we'll see her when we're back. When we're yeah. done filming the movie, we'll connect. And I yeah. had all this delusional crap in my head. Yeah, so I understand people who change when others become famous because I think it's just such a weird, weird experience for it everybody. Is it is weird. And even for people who have, like, my relationship with my mom was great before and is still great. But it was funny, I brought her to one of my events once and... She kind of told me afterwards, she was like, I love you. I'm so happy for you. This is weird. <laughs> she was like, it's an auditorium with like a thousand people yeah. in it. And I'm on stage and people are cheering and stuff. And my mom was just weird. like, I can't wrap my head around this. I yeah. don't know if I can do another one of these. And I was like, that's fine. <laughs> my son was reading my book and would call me every day. He wouldn't read it till it was done. I begged him. I'm like, honey, you yeah. might want to change stuff. You might not like it. He's like, I don't care. I trust you. Just do whatever. Calls me every day, reading a chapter a day. Oh my God, mom. I love it. I love it. I love it. Then he gets to a point where it's like childhood trauma activated. Then he was like, 
I can't read. I can't read anymore. <laughs> and then I'm kind of heartbroken. I'm like, you really can't read it? It gets good again, honey. Like you'll, <laughs> you'll get beyond that hump. So I always warn everybody. In fact, I say it in the book. Your family and friends, some of them aren't going to read it. And they have oh, yeah. all sorts of reasons why they don't read it, but don't get heartbroken. I warn people, don't get heartbroken because they don't read it. Has that been your experience? I actually kind of like it that they don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Some of my closest friends, some of my closest guy friends, I'll be hanging out with them. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read your book. I'll be like, yeah, we'll be talking about something. I'll be like, yeah, I actually kind of wrote about that in my last book, you know, that blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, dude. I guess uh, this is kind of embarrassing, but I never read that book. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's actually probably why we're still such good friends is that you're not reading my book. Right. <laughs> How the fuck do you balance your writing life and your time with your wife? That is my biggest challenge. Mm. That's a good question. I have a tendency to be a workaholic. Me too. And she respects that. She understands and she knows working makes me happy. I'm fortunate that she works from home as well. So we get a lot of very just small, casual time. Like we'll have lunch together or she'll come into my office and tell me about something that's going on or whatever. So there's a lot of small little interactions throughout the day. We make sure to schedule time together, schedule a date night, schedule trips together, stuff yeah. like that. I think it really just comes down to communication, expectation. Fortunately, she's kind of a workaholic as well. So <laughs> we understand where yeah. the other is yeah. mentally. Like it, when we're peak hustle mode, I know what that's like. So I don't get upset when she's in that mode and she understands what that's like. And so if I'm in crunch time and working 12 hours a day, if I have a deadline coming up, she understands I'm just unavailable. Yeah, my, <laughs> mine, does, mine does too, but where it got a little dicey for us is my husband understood the whole concept of deadline for sure. Mm. And afterwards, seriously, he was like, okay, now you're done, right? I'm like, uh, well, now I have to publicize it. <laughs> I had no concept. It just yeah. no concept yeah. of, because he was a corporate guy, very different. Yeah. Didn't bring his work home with him. At the end of the day, he was done. So yeah. that entrepreneurial thing is a challenge. It's always been yeah. for me. Yeah, and it's, I think at this point, it's taken a number of years, but I think there's ebbs and flows to this career. Like you'll have one year will be super intense and then another year is kind of relaxed. Yeah. Or you'll have like a three-month run that is crazy intense and then you've got a month or two that's kind of relaxed. And I think she understands that at this point. She understands like, okay, things will lighten up in a few months. So oh, totally, just... totally. I remember Lee Child told me, Gosh, I forget what year it was, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And he sold a couple hundred million books. And he said, the hardest part is that you're beholden to your readers. He said, you know, yeah. honestly, it's a challenge. And he and his wife have negotiated it really well. But he said he feels so indebted to his readers. They've given him such a big life and he yeah. wants to be there for them. And they're kind of Reacher's creatures because he has the Jack Reacher series. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they're diehards. I think it's a balancing act for all of us. And especially since with social media, readers have more access to us than they ever did. Oh, yeah. I get DMs at midnight. I get DMs at 6 a.m. or whatever. And my tendency is to answer them right away because then I won't miss people. I feel bad yeah. if I miss people. But 
Do you schedule it so you're not available 24-7? I've actually, yeah. This is one way that starting with blogging was very helpful because the blog blew up before the book. Yes. And while the blog was blowing up, it forced me to kind of create boundaries and processes and set expectations with people like, I'm not going to look at every comment. I'm not going to answer every email. As the audience has grown, those boundaries and expectations have gotten a little bit stricter and more specific. I guess you could say the same way. It's actually not the same way, but same principle of the way I need to set expectations with my wife of when I'm available, when I'm not available, when I'm going to spend time with her, when I'm not going to spend time with her. I kind of do the same thing with my readers. These are the contexts that I'll read and answer emails. These are the contexts that I'll be available for Q&A or whatever. And these are the things that you're just never going to get a response. <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> so good luck, you know. <laughs> Talk to me about producing the movie. How was that in comparison to sitting in a lonely room? It's a big difference. It's super collaborative. It is incredibly collaborative. It was very interesting the creative process with a book, you kind of always have a sense of what it's going to end up looking like. It always ends up looking different than you originally thought. But as you go, you still have kind of a formulation in your head of these are going to be the chapters. These are the main points. This is going to be the argument or whatever. With the movie, there's so many parts of producing the film that it was kind of like, well, we're just going to shoot this thing. And if it turns out well, great, we'll use it. And if it doesn't, then we won't. It's kind of just throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and because there are so many people involved, you've got the crew and the lighting people and the audio people and the director and the editor, and everybody knows a little bit of the end product, yeah. but nobody other than maybe the director, nobody sees the whole thing. Right, it all has to come together at the end, at the 11th hour. Including me, too. There were times where they're filming me saying stuff and doing stuff, and I have no clue how this is going to be used for anything. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, And so for me, especially for somebody who primarily works alone, the process was a big exercise in trust for me. Both the production company and the director, they were really, really good beforehand. We had a lot of meetings, a lot of creative meetings. They really wanted me to kind of lay out what my hopes for the film were, what kind of tone I wanted, what kind of visuals I wanted, what kind of structure I wanted. They were really good at listening to that. But then as soon as it got time to actually start filming, it was very clear to me that I don't know shit about filmmaking. Absolutely nothing. And at that moment, I realized, okay, I just have to trust these people and trust that they know what they're doing and trust that it's going to turn out well. (laughs) As an EP, do you have final say? Yes. That's awesome. That's one of the things for our listeners. You can ask for that with your book contract. You're not likely to get it in the beginning, but sometimes you get it. I had cover and I had final editorial on this book. And that means a lot because when they say to you, You've got one more edit and only do the grammatical typo stuff, nothing else. And then I send back a list of 402 changes, some of them (laughs) just on a whim. They're okay with it because I have final, but wow. Okay, so you had that. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, it was great. 
And it also felt very important. It was kind of a, a deal breaker when we were negotiating the contract of like, yeah, if you produce a movie that I think doesn't represent the book well, I don't want that movie coming out. So it was perfect for the book. You really nailed all the key things that I felt had to be in really well. Yeah. Yeah. It turned out great. We're all very happy with it. But yeah, it was a wild process. The big thing for me was learning the trust and also this realization of discovering all the things you don't know. Oh, yeah. Would you do it again? Oh, for sure. It was a blast. Honestly, I had a blast. The only stressful part, it's funny, I've been doing all these interviews and they keep asking me, how was the interview filming process? Sitting down and talking about all these super personal stories on film. That process was actually very easy. I've been very public about all these stories and I've done a million interviews about the book. So that felt very easy to sit down in a room and talk about those things on camera. The thing that was terrifying was when the first cut came back and I saw myself on a screen. (laughs) The worst. I know. I'm like, oh God, I'm like, my ears look funny. And, you know, like, couldn't I have worn a different shirt? That just never goes away. Everything. That shit never goes away. Oh my God. High quality problems fit. Oh my God. Mark, such a joy. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. You've been on my very, very short list for a really long time. Total joy. Thanks. I appreciate it. Huge thank you to Mark Manson and his team at Universal for making this interview happen. With a special I Adore You Girls shout out to Greta at the Greta Rose Agency. It's not often that a self-help book becomes a feature film, but when it happens, my favorite before now was He's Just Not That Into You. It's such a joy for me to see an author's work make that visual leap. I hope you enjoyed today's episode produced by Kevin Baker at Red Room Sound and that you'll join us next month for a roundtable of some of my most successful self-publishing clients who've sold millions of books and made their writerly dreams come true, including eventually publishing traditionally. Until then, please rate and review the show if you have found value. Here's to a magical 2023. (laughs) Please, God, right on.